It's a great honor to be with you. Thank you for, for coming. Uh, we uh, love World Christian Broadcasting, and uh, we really feel a strong sense of partnership and kinship with them. Felt like they're the Air Force and we're the Army. Uh, they're coming into the airwaves, and we're trying to get ground troops in, and, and we are so glad to be able to work with them, and they're always very, very collaborative and, and eager to work with us. And, and as my friend Grady King said, we live in an era of collaborate and die. We need to overcome these silly notions of competition that come from a scarcity mentality when we serve a God of limitless resources. Uh, and uh, as the old uh, saying of Norval Young is, there's no competition among lighthouses. And so uh, uh, my predecessor at MRN, the founding director, Bob Waldron, said, we will do nothing alone that we can do together. And so that's a great spirit. And we very much appreciate what World Christian Broadcasting does, the way they're now blanketing the globe with shortwave uh, gospel messages in the midst of just really great entertainment options with their towers in Alaska and now Madagascar and, and just so very thankful for the way that they're softening up the soil of people's hearts with the message and so it's a, it's a great ministry and we're glad you're there and, and uh, glad to have the opportunity to be with you. Um, well we, we uh, at MRN we, we do four things let me just kind of quickly give you a sense we have that that if we talk about mobilizing, equipping, preparing, and caring uh, most people probably would know us for missionary care. We do a lot. We do a ton of missionary care, preparing. We train missionaries, equipping. We equip churches to understand and serve the mission of God with excellence, whether an American church or a foreign national church. But mobilizing, that may not be quite as obvious what that means, but that's just paying attention to what God is doing in the world and where the great opportunities are coming to fruition that God's been working on maybe for decades or centuries. And when something begins to break and God's hand is clearly moving in the world, getting the story out so that churches and workers and organizations, agencies can focus their attention and mobilizing those resources to join what God is doing in the world in really timely ways. And what happens in our churches and our organizations, we get our head down, hoe in our row, and focus on what we're doing. And it's often stuff we've been doing a long time, and we're working with people around the world. We've had relationships for a long time. And we don't realize that maybe God is doing something enormous over here that we need to kind of redirect our focus a little bit and talk about how do we leverage what we have here to join that over there. Uh, not abandon what we're doing, but maybe redirect our focus and our energies to really focus on the most high leverage opportunities. Well, that is now happening in a part of the world that all of my life and many centuries before has been considered to be essentially unreachable territory. Mm -hmm. And that's the Islamic world in the Middle East and North Africa. Um, just historically, there's been virtually no movement of that whatsoever. <coughs> and God has been on the move for a while setting things up, but we are not getting the news in the United States. And until 9-11, we almost paid no attention to that part of the world whatsoever. It was just irrelevant to us. Yeah. Um, and then all of a sudden, uh, we get attacked, and we wake up to that world, but only to see it as an enemy. And our churches are filled with people who were overwhelmed with fear, who watch Chicken Little Network, a chicken, you know, chicken Little Network every night on television, and just get scared and want to stop uh, immigration and want to just make these people go away and think that violence is the only solution to violence, which strange thing for Christian people to think. Mm -hmm. And we just don't want to deal with it. And we think that uh, ISIS and civil war and disrest and revolutions and 
dislocations of people, that it's all evil. Well, there's lots of evil in it. It's being driven by a lot of evil people. But God has always done his best work in the midst of the worst situations, that's right. And you think about the most triumphant moment in the story of God, and it's a cross. And what looks like utter defeat is actually the moment of victory and transformation. Uh, and the gospel emerged in the midst of the Roman occupation uh, and the oppression of the people of God. And it was in that context, in the symbol of Roman dominance, the cross, that God brought salvation. Well, that's the way God works. And he's doing it again. Because as evil as the violence is, and as evil as the oppression is, and as evil as a lot of stuff that's going on around the world is, it's creating cracks and fissures in parts of the world that have been sealed off, and the gospel of Jesus is getting in, and hungry people are getting access to the gospel in a way that they simply have never had before. And so the gospel is actually being helped by ISIS. Mm -hmm. Now, that isn't just an American's opinion. We sent, uh, about three years ago, we had a new director of African missions coming on board. And Sam Schumacher, who had been our director for many years, said Sub-Saharan Africa is so strong. There's so many great leaders uh, among the African churches. We need to really think about north. We need to think north of the Sahara. Because we've got less than 1% Christian throughout almost all those nations. And it's time for us to redirect our energies there. Let's support the Africans as they claim Africa for Christ, but let's refocus our energies on the north. So that made a lot of sense, and our new guy coming in, Chris Shelby, uh, really took that up. He said, all right, how do we get the gospel into North Africa? What's going on? So he began to Google and find information, talk to people, and found that there's a conference that happens on an island in the Mediterranean every year that focuses on North African and Middle Eastern mission efforts. So he went to that conference. And he came back, and this would have been probably February of 2016. He came back, and the stories he was telling just blew our mind. We heard some echoes. We heard some elements of this, but we didn't know the scope of it. And he talked about this brother who came from Morocco, uh, working with an underground church there in Morocco. And he got up to give his country report, and his opening statement was, I want to thank God for ISIS, <laughs> because they're making it possible for my people to hear about Jesus. And he began to tell about how all of the violence, all of the revolutions, the wars, the terrorism are waking people up to the limitations of the vision of Muhammad and Islam. And the inherent problems that go with that vision of the world. And they are wanting to know more about this prophet who came before Isa, Jesus. And how there are people who are having visions and dreams of Isa. And they're pursuing him and seeking him. And there's just this new desire to know about Jesus in Morocco. And how it is being driven by a sense that there is something profoundly wrong with Islam. That it's producing so much terror and war and bloodshed and destabilization everywhere in the world. We need another answer. And then country after country after country, Chris began to hear these kinds of stories. And... People working with refugees out of the Middle East, people who were working in countries, in everything from Turkey all the way back through uh, Pakistan, are telling similar stories of God being on the move in ways that were just heretofore unimaginable. 
And so we said, all right, we gotta, we gotta check into this. And so we did a seven country, 23 day trip around the Mediterranean, just visiting people who were working with refugees and in parts of the world where this is happening, Craig Young in Marseille is, is, is uh, well aware of that and one of those people who's very much aware of working with that as well. And, and what we began to find out is the stories were bolder than we had heard and bigger than we had imagined. And this was a historic opportunity. And so when we see on the news these images of, of war and of conflict and we just think, oh, this is all awful. Well, it's awful, but it is driving what God is doing in a new way. So let me show you a video we put together that's getting a little bit antiquated now because time moves pretty quick and things have moved on. But this will kind of give you some idea of the situation and how we're trying to address it at MRN. And we know it's bigger than what we can address. But... You just get some kind of picture of it. In the summer of 2015, Europe experienced the highest influx of refugees since the Second World War. Why? The main reason is that Syria has become the world's top source of refugees. Since the 1960s, it's been led by the Al-Assad family, who have ruled it as quasi-dictators until the Arab Spring happened in 2011, a revolutionary wave of protests and conflicts in the Arab world that toppled many authoritarian regimes. But the Assads refused to step down and started a brutal civil war. The Syrian population was trapped between the regime, rebel groups, and the religious extremists. A third of the Syrian people have been displaced within Syria, while over 4 million have fled the country. As a result, many refugee camps are crowded and undersupplied. The Syrians lost hope that their situation will be getting better anytime soon, so many decided to seek asylum in Europe. We are just like Europe. We have money, we have houses, we have cars, we have everything. The war damages everything. So what do you need? Peace. that he gives us is eyes to see things differently. And I think as the church we're being challenged to see what's taking place in the Muslim world in a different way. A lot of these folks that are moving out of the Middle East, they're asking about who is this Jesus. These are people, people with names and stories who have had no access to the gospel. And we have access to them. And we have people on the ground who have churches, and they're not equipped to handle this massive influx of refugees and immigrants. So I think the people of God do have a responsibility here to respond as Christ would respond. At MRN, we want to step into the moment that God has placed before us. We feel like God's called us to create five hubs over the next five years, where all we have to do is drop in workers and accelerate something that's already in process. They're getting humanitarian aid, but there are not many people who have the ability to talk with them about how to become followers of Jesus. Many of us are wanting to step into this, become more intimate with the issue, with these people. So we're trying to identify a dozen churches that say, we want to be part of this Mediterranean Rim initiative. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. We also deeply desire to connect other people who are working in the region. The day of working in our silos has to be over. The job is too big. We respond and we serve as a body of Christ. We're simply observing what our God is doing, and we want to join Him in that. We want people to participate with us in prayer. Because we believe that both Scripture and history show that 
whenever a great move of God takes place, it's preceded by a great prayer movement. There's just a way to leverage this moment that is unprecedented. And so we're looking for prayer, we're looking for partnership, and, and we're looking for workers. God is moving among a people whom we have always thought were unreachable. The peoples in Africa were thought to be unreachable, but people went. Very much like when communism began to fall, we rose to that challenge. Church, this is one of our moments that God has recreated us to step into and not to step away from. 86% of Muslims in our world have never met a disciple of Jesus. That's not okay. We've got to do better than that. And the way that we do better is by showing up. The kingdom of God moves into the neighborhood. deeply emotional every time I've seen that and I've seen that way more times than I can count um, just to kind of give you some idea of the historic nature of this opportunity we're talking about a 1400 year period of time that Islam has been essentially impenetrable to, impenetrable to the gospel uh, go read Chapman's book the, the Cross and the Crescent and he chronicles the long history of interaction between Islam and Christianity and you have a lot of efforts that have been made, uh, particularly in the last hundred years, to reach Muslims. Uh, and you'll have missionaries who'll spend uh, 20, 30 years and maybe have five converts. Um, and essentially, wherever Islam went, their, their vision is for uh, a theocracy, total domination, the Ummah, the, the one people of, of Islam, all under Allah through the caliph, the head, the, the successor to Muhammad, and it, it is unthinkable to be anything other than Muslim there, and, and just, uh, you know, you, you, the expectation is this is a completely Muslim country, you should be Muslim here. Now, uh, the Quran did permit and tolerate people of the book, mm -hmm. so Jews and Christians, uh, if you're in a fairly reasonable Islamic country, it's, it's legal to be Christian or Jewish there, but you have to pay an extra tax, and you are second class, you have to accept your class, second class status, and all of the privileges and all of the biases are going to the other, but if you engage in any kind of activity to evangelize or engage, then, then, and then you have done something that's completely unacceptable. Uh, and it's offensive to Allah, it's offensive to Muhammad, uh, and if anybody converts, then they have shamed the Ummah, they have shamed their people, they are to be treated as if they're dead, and it's not unknown that there be honor killings. Uh, I know of a church in Houston that had two Muslim women who came to Jesus in their church. One was from Iraq and one was from Saudi Arabia. And one when her husband found out, he confined her to the house uh, and almost kicked her out of the house, and she was in great danger of violence. Uh, but the other uh, her, told her mother that she had become a Christian, and her mother said, the last word she ever spoke to her, I'm sending my brother to America to kill you, mm -hmm. and hung up the phone. 
And so while it is illegal to evangelize and it's illegal to convert in most Muslim countries, it is not the political consequences that make it most difficult. It is the social and the family consequences. That even if somebody falls in love with Jesus, uh, they can't go down and get the papers changed from Muslim to being Christian without putting themselves in legal danger, but they will be kicked out of their family and often targets of violence because they have shamed the family. They have shamed all of Islam if they have done that. And so because of that, it, it's just extremely difficult historically. And to give you some idea of what we're talking about, from if you read uh, David Garrison's book, Wind in the House of Islam, he talks about uh, this from a, a demographic standpoint, missiological demographics. He says that from, from the year 600 until the year 1900, which is 1300 years, we only know of two instances in 1,300 years where there was a movement to Christ among any people group that produced as many as 100 churches or 1,000 baptized believers. Two movements in 1,300 years. Now, there may be a little church here, five, maybe even as many as 10, but it typically then disappears fairly quickly. Okay? But two movements in 1,300 years. In the 20th century, where there was a massive explosion of missionary activity from America, from the West, with technology after the war, World War I, World War II, a greater world consciousness and greater money driven by industrialization and growing economic opportunity and churches kind of come of age, sending missionaries all over the world. In the 20th century, in 100 years, from 1900 to 2000, we know of 11 movements to Christ in 100 years that produced as many as 100 churches or 1,000 baptisms in a single people group. But from 2000 to 2012, there were 69. In 13 years, there were 69 movements to Christ in the Islamic world that produced as many as 1,000 believers or 100 churches in a single people group. And the Arab Spring happened in 2011. And things have opened up far more since 2011. We just don't have good demographic information. Uh, like we do up through 2012, because it takes multiple years to put those studies together. Um, the Crescent Project, which is a, a missions organization that's been doing work in the Muslim world for many, many years, uh, is saying that more Muslims have come to Christ in the last 20 years than the 1,400 years preceding it combined. And they say that of the Muslim refugees who are coming to Europe, and they've been coming by the millions, for the last six, seven years. Four out of seven refugees from a Muslim country that come into Europe, when speaking with a Christian that meets with them, four out of seven report having dreams and visions of Jesus along the way. Now, they don't all become Christian. But there are enormous forces at work there. Now, we don't have a bucket to put that in. What do we do with that? But these are really captivating stories. Guess which country in the world right now has the fastest growing Christian population? The number one country in the world. You, you know because you live in Jordan. But it's not Jordan. Iran. Right now, for the last several years, the population of Christians, particularly evangelical Christians, is growing at a 12% growth rate in Iran. This is in a country 
where if uh, there's an evangelical uh, broadcast organization that broadcasts satellite television all through the Middle East called SatSat. They have a phone number at the end of their broadcast, and you can, you can watch it on satellite television, and they put that phone number. If you call that number in Iran, when you hang up the phone, you will get a call back from the government telling you, do not ever call this number again. Uh, I met a guy last summer in Athens who spent six months in prison when he became a Christian in Iran. I'll show you. I may have this picture in this presentation. I don't think so. Um, he spent six months in prison. The only reason he got out was because his father was a high-ranking military officer in the Iranian army, and he had political pull. And he was able to get out of prison with the promise that he would leave the country and never come back. But his best friend and three other people from his church were beheaded. And yet Christianity is growing faster in Iran than any place in the world. And the people who are training the pastors, the church planters, the preachers, the disciple makers are doing it outside the country and people leave on business reasons or whatever and they gather and they train and then they go back and they're putting their lives on the line all the time and yet there is such huge hunger and desire for Jesus. I talked to this one woman, she now, she was actually my translator last summer uh, for all the preaching, the work that I did when we were, we were in Athens. She told me that she had given up on Islam when she lived in uh, Tehran. She had a real estate business, she was middle class, well educated, uh, spoke multiple languages extremely well. She's a really, really brilliant and, and, and delightful person. Her name was Layla. And uh, she was actually engaged to the guy who was in prison and his buddies were beheaded. Uh, and the reason she left to go to uh, Europe was because she was with him. But she said, I had given up on Islam. I just could not believe that what I was seeing came from God. And I had lots of questions, and I went to the imam at the at Majid, the mosque, and I asked him questions that I had, and he would not give me any answers. He just said it was shameful to ask these questions, and that I should not ask these questions, and as a woman I had no right to even ask these questions, and just to submit. She said, so I studied about Buddhism, and I studied about Hinduism, and I studied about Christianity, and I didn't know what to think. I was kind of pulling it together. She had a dream where there were two long lines, and one of the lines was people who were waiting to meet Muhammad, and one of the lines was people who were waiting to Jesus, and she was standing in the line of people going to Jesus, and she didn't know why. You know. But when she came to Greece, and she was welcomed by Christians who she were told by her enemy, and she saw how they were responding with love and compassion and service, to Muslim refugees, she decided that she wanted to follow Jesus because he was a man of peace instead of a man of war. These kinds of stories you just hear over and over and over again. Uh, today, Iran uh, estimates, well, let's say in 1979, most of you look like you were old enough to remember when uh, the Shah of Iran fell and the Ayatollah Khomeini came in. Some of you are not, uh, but I was uh, very much. Uh, uh, alive and awake uh, and aware of what was going on with him. In 1979, Iran, before the Shah went down, was a very westernized nation, propped up by western powers and the global conflict between the east and the west. Best numbers, we have about 500 Christians in Iran in 1979. Today, estimates go as high as a million. That's probably uh, an overly optimistic number. 
but most estimates come on in range from 300,000 to a million. Uh, best guess is somewhere around 600,000 believers in Jesus in Iran today. Uh, so many stories that you hear about these people coming. So let's uh, talk a little bit about how many people are displaced and homeless. Uh, in the last class that we had, uh, Mark Hooper saying we had 60 million displaced people in the world today, refugees somewhere in the world. Uh, this is a map that shows you the Middle East. Of course, you've got Turkey here in Syria, and you've got Lebanon and Jordan down here, and you've got uh, Iraq and Iran and, and Afghanistan and all back over here. Well, the, the pathway is flooding this way, but just give you some sense of the numbers. Uh, you have over, then these numbers are old now. These are all low estimates. But you have um, over 5 million now Iraqis who are refugees. Syria, over half the Syrian population has been driven from their homes. Probably well in excess of 12 million people now. The city of Aleppo, which is a city of about 2 million, is just a graveyard now. It's just rubble and graveyard. I can't tell you how many people I met from Aleppo. Um, you have uh, over 4 million Afghanis who've been driven out. And they're all uh, the Dari-speaking Afghanis, which Dari is um, almost identical to Farsi, the language that they speak in Iran. Ethnically, historically, they are more Persian, uh, and they are more moderate. Mm -hmm. And so the Daris believe in educating their daughters. You can spot the Afghanis. They look different from the Syrians because the women's head covering will be looser, and you'll be able to see the hair between the head covering and the forehead. Um, they are uh, very gentle and peaceful people. Uh, but Osama bin Laden took his radical ideas into Afghanistan, mobilized the rural Pashtun-speaking people who did very, very uh, uh, strict and very male-dominated and uh, began to turn them against the Dari-speaking people because now they're traitors, they're heretics, uh, and they're insisting on Sharia law. And so they have been brutalized now for years and years, and they have fled. So you have over 4 million Afghanis. And by the way, Europe classifies them as economic and not war refugees, so they're not getting the same uh, privileges, and they're not being allowed into Europe where the Syrians are. The Syrians are there maybe six months, and they're, they're on out because of awareness of that. The, the Afghanis are just getting stuck, and they're wanting to get sent back. You've got uh, three or two, two and a half million refugees in Turkey right now, and refugee camps. And from what I hear, the refugee camps are just squalid. They're, they're way below the, the standard that you have in Greece. And I'm, I've been to some of those, and I'm telling you, it's not a place you want to live. And the food these people are eating is really, really awful. Uh, you know, in Jordan, where the uh, where you know, Dan is, where you've got about a million and a half refugees. Oh, the last time I It's closer to three now. Really? Yeah, 40% of the population is refugees. Okay, so they've got a ministry in Amman, so you may want to talk to, to them. But uh, <coughs> similar in, in Lebanon, so the last numbers I heard, you got a million and a half in each country, that's three million total, but you're saying there may be three million just in Jordan yeah. alone. Um, and so you've got millions that are backlogged, and guess where they all want to go? I want to go to Europe the United States, where there's religious freedom. Now, when we were in Greece, we heard estimates that as many as 10 million refugees had come through Greece, which is really interesting because only 10 million people live in Greece. 
Uh, <laughs> so I think those numbers are greatly inflated. Uh, a very conservative number is a million and a half as of a year ago, uh, probably well over two million refugees. I don't think anybody really knows how many people have come through. Uh, and and they come across really, some of them walking over a thousand miles. I mean, it's a long, long ways from Afghanistan through Iran, out the backside, and then through Turkey all the way. But they take these long treks, and they're abandoning all of their stuff. They're abandoning their homelands. They, they're abandoning property that's been in their family for century after century after century, and all of the honor and all of the of the emotional attachment, and they're fleeing all of this to never have it again. They're often well-educated people who have uh, um, professional backgrounds and experiences, and they're just fleeing for their own lives. And uh, the, when, they're, when they're walking on these journeys every night, they have to tie a rope to their daughter's legs and tie to their leg lest their daughter be stolen in the night and trafficked. I mean, just the horrors they're living with are just unimaginable. And, and they get to Turkey, and then they pay some human trafficker whatever little money they have left to take them across the Aegean Sea and they land on one of the islands in Greece and hopefully eventually come in through Athens or, or come across the land bridge here and come in through Thessaloniki uh, into northern Greece. And, and the European country, for the most part, have just tried to shut the borders as much as possible. And uh, they're slowly allowing them in, but their plight is really quite... Uh, overwhelming, and yet in the midst of this, so many of them are finding Jesus. Um, but here's the scary thing about it. At this year's uh, conference in the Mediterranean on this island, we're not really supposed to talk about where we're on, uh, they said that the people who come from these backgrounds and who become Christian, uh, when they enter the country as refugees, Within 18 months, entering into another European country, 90% of them go back to being Muslim. And it's not because they've lost interest in Jesus. It is because they are not being received well in those cultures. They are objects of uh, racism, various types of stereotypes. They are unwanted. They're being kind of forced into cultural ghettos and there, the only place you can find community is among their fellow Muslims, and they have not been discipled, and they have not been educated, and nobody has trained them to be leaders, and they just don't know much about the Bible or their faith or Jesus, and nobody has equipped them to start Muslim background churches, and they're not being accepted by most of the European churches that they try to go to. There are some. There are some really wonderful churches in Europe that are doing well, reaching out to refugees and bringing them in. And, sometimes baptizing by the hundreds, but those are more the exception than they are the norm. And so they're just kind of reverting back to sort of being nominal Muslim culturally. And so an opportunity is being missed. It's not enough to do humanitarian aid in the name of Jesus and to demonstrate the love of Jesus. These people need to be discipled. We need to identify leaders. We need to equip them. We need to empower them to go plant churches that are designed culturally for Muslim background people and not expect European churches to assimilate people they don't understand and expect Muslims to cross the cultural gap and to fit into a Western-style church. Uh, and we need to equip these former Muslim background people to read the Bible from their own perspective and background and, and interpret it and form people that fit the culture that they come from 
not just join Western culture because they're making such a huge cultural adaptation just through the refugee status. Most immigrants and refugees need to preserve something of their homeland and their culture. And if we don't help them do that in the name of Jesus, they'll revert back and do it in the name of Islam. And so while there's tremendous energy and tension on humanitarian aid, a lot of it in the name of Jesus, and that's great, and we need more of it, not less, we also have to be equipping these people and discipling these people and identifying leaders and training leaders and then following them where they go and equipping them and encouraging them to start Jesus groups, communities, in Muslim communities, uh, or the moment will be lost. Um, so we're trying to step into this, and a lot of other people are too. And so it, it, you know, it's not a uniquely MRN story, but we are really trying to draw churches and people into this. And, and if you come from a church uh, that uh, would be open to talk about it, we would love to talk with your church about maybe being a part of the story uh, in some way. Um, so here's some of the things that uh, we're, we're trying to do in our vision. We, uh, oh, well, we're jumping and telling stories now. Okay. I don't know what the order of my slides is. Uh, so let me just tell you a couple of the stories. Now, uh, you'll see Eleni Melaritu here. Uh, she uh, is uh, with the Ammonia Church in Athens, and they were great to host us on our survey trip. And then last summer when we had a, a team we were training to go work in Athens, they graciously allowed us to use their church building as a kind of a training ground. Uh, and they're doing a lot of work with refugees, and this is a family that we met there. Um, I'm not going to give you the, the names uh, of these people, uh, but uh, let's just call the girl in the wheelchair Noor, a common uh, Islamic name. Uh, her father uh, was, uh, owned a, a construction business, uh, and uh, he built buildings and homes, and, and uh, they are Dari-speaking Afghanis. Um, but uh, they were targeted for violence, and he was a hard time hard getting work because of, he was Dari instead of uh, the right people group. And so uh, they said, there's no future for our daughters here, and they have a, a little girl. And the oldest girl, Noor, I'm calling her, uh, 15 years old, and had polio as a child and could not walk. And so they make this long track from Kabul, Afghanistan, all the way on foot, all the way through. They finally get into Turkey. And they get into a refugee camp uh, somewhere along the way. I'm not sure where, because the story gets a little murky through translation at times. But the mom is telling me the story. And, uh, uh, and she said, uh, you know, that the, the parents got separated. They didn't let the men and the women stay in the same part of the refugee camp for protection reasons. And they don't get out of the refugee camp at the same time. And so they somehow they get separated along the way. They eventually found each other again. I don't know how that happened either. But the mom is going with the three children, and her daughter, Noor, can't walk. And so the mother, who's no bigger than five feet tall, she's a strong woman, she's a small woman, she's carrying her daughter on her back with the two younger children. And at one part, the trail was just a steep uphill kind of mountainous passage. And the mother said, I just couldn't do it anymore. I just couldn't carry it anymore. And so I put her down, and I just wept. I didn't know what to do. Now, the translator between me and the mom is the 15-year-old daughter. She spoke English very well. She'd been to school. Couldn't go anymore because of the Taliban. But, but uh, 
She's telling me this story in a dispassionate sort of way that just blew my mind. She said, uh, and she's telling it in the third person even though it's about her. You know? So the mom puts her down, just weeps on what to do, and then the mother said, and that's the first time I ever prayed to Jesus, or Jesus. She said, I just had this feeling I should pray to Isa. I don't know why. I had never prayed to Isa. I did not know Isa. I just knew he was a prophet. But I knew some people worshipped Isa. And Muhammad wasn't helping. Allah wasn't helping. So she said, I prayed to Isa. And this power came over me. And I've never felt anything like this before. And I picked up Noor, and she was no heavier than a chicken, and we just kept going. And then, every time we had trouble, we prayed to Isa, and he always helped us. Well, they get over to the coast. They give their last money to these people who put them on these inflatable boats, like the ones you saw in the video. Take them across the Aegean Sea. Very dangerous trip. Now, I heard the story in the fall of 2016. This was early September, late August, early September, right around the turn of the month. 3,800 people had drowned making that passage, trying to get into Greece that year in the first eight months. These traffickers are taking them across. The port is closed. Greece is not taking anybody in. But by law, the Coast Guard cannot leave people loose in the water. So the traffickers would take these refugees as close enough to the port as they could so that the Coast Guard could see them and then they deflate the boat, pretend that they had a leak, act like it was an emergency situation. All those people are spilled out into the water and of course somebody comes along and picks up the boat driver and the boat and hauls it off and these people are just left to tread water and the Coast Guard comes out and has to rescue them. Well, that's tough enough if you're an able-bodied person, but what if you have polio and you are partially paralyzed? So the mother said, I was just panicking, watching for my children, and where are they, and Noor, and is she alive, and is she still, and she said, I just prayed, Isa, Isa, save Noor, save Noor, and she said, and I looked, and there was a man who had a hold of Noor and had her held, head held above the water and, and kept her safe until the Coast Guard could come. And I just thanked God, I thanked God that Isa answered our prayer. And we got up on the Coast Guard vessel, and she said, I looked everywhere on that boat for that man, and I could not find him. And I asked all of the people who came over with us from Turkey, and no one remembered seeing him on the boat. And she said, that was Jesus. It was Isa. I, of course, corrected her theology. <laughs> I told her God doesn't do things like that anymore. <laughs> when John died, that was the end of that. What do you say? So they showed up in Athens at a church and said, Would you please tell us about Isa? Because he's been saving us all along our journey. And that's when they found out that Jesus died for them. They did not know the story of the cross. They had been baptized two weeks when we met them, and they could not talk about Jesus without crying. Mm -hmm. About two weeks ago, I contacted Noor through Facebook Messenger to just ask, how you doing, how you doing? They're now uh, in Switzerland. She said, we're doing good, we're doing good. I said, well, did you find a church? She said, yes, we found a church. We go every Sunday, we go every Sunday. I said, oh, that's wonderful, that's wonderful told her about some of the things we were doing, and we had a team that was getting ready to go to Athens. She said, oh, that's so good. She's so good. 
give them our love. And then it's one of the great stories. Now, just to stretch a little farther, I wouldn't believe this if I didn't see it. But they begin to pray that God would make it possible for Noor to walk. And she was walking. Now, she walked stiffly. And she was having to learn to balance. But for the first time in her life, she was walking. They said, Jesus, heal. You can do what you want to with that. Um, but I don't think that comes from the evil one. And to the glory of God, that girl's walking. And she loves Jesus. And we didn't do that. But it sure is great to hear that story. Uh, another uh, Afghani family uh, here. Uh, the man there is, uh, you, you remember him, Greg? Yeah. Um, this family is another Afghani family. Uh, man and wife and their number three child, daughter. She's also, she speaks English amazingly well. Uh, and then this is the sister. These women are sisters. Her husband was killed. Um, and that's when their families began to make the move. Uh, the man here uh, was trained by the Soviets in his youth to work on uh, fighter jets uh, and then later made his living as a tailor. But the, the sister-in-law is, a, I believe, a chemical engineer. Uh, and these are highly educated, really competent people, and they fled because they wanted their daughters to have a future because they had four children, or five children, uh, one son and four daughters. Uh, amazingly competent people. He is a leader among the Dari-speaking Afghanis there uh, at the Ammonia congregation. I uh, spent a lot of time doing uh, some leadership training with him when I was there. Last summer I did a lot of other people as well. Uh, he told me, he said, uh, um, my father was a Muslim, my grandfather was a Muslim, his father before him, and he said, Allah was remote. We did not know him. he was far off. But he said, now Jesus is right here in my heart. He said, we were enemies, we were two, but now in Jesus we are one. Uh, just a phenomenal guy. Uh, love his story, but they've not been able to get up. Uh, this is the guy I was telling you about uh, who was uh, from Iran uh, and whose uh, friends were beheaded. Uh, uh, he, he became a Christian in Belarus, went to visit his aunt, who was a Christian in Belarus, who came back uh, and had to flee the country. Uh, but he and his uh, fiance are still, I believe, in Athens last time I... I spoke to them. This guy uh, was a translator for the U.S. Marines and spoke English extremely well. And I, the, the, the guy I told you who was the tailor with the three women there, um, he didn't speak English well enough for us to have meaningful conversations about the Bible or Scripture. Um, but uh, So he brought this guy from the refugee camp who spoke English very well, but he, still, he was still very much a Muslim. But his wife was reading the Bible and he said she woke him up all night telling him about what she was reading. <laughs> and uh, he really wasn't very interested at all in knowing about that. Uh, and I found out why later. But the other guy brought him as a translator. I found out later it's because he wanted to evangelize this guy and he thought he would overhear some stuff. So he brings him as a translator. And I'm having these conversations with him. And, and the, the first guy, uh, uh, he tells, he, he's asking, you know, uh, Explain the Trinity to me. John 1. How can Jesus be God and the Son of God at the same time? You know, it's like, okay, well, you know, we begin to try to unpack that. And what does that mean? And he wanted to know the birth narrative. The birth narrative of Jesus is really important. He knew the, the one from the Quran, but he didn't know the birth narrative from the Gospels and how Jesus came to be. 
And, and he's just asking really great questions. Well, this guy's translating all of the answers. <laughs> and he would translate, and he, we would go for about 30 minutes, and then he'd go, and he'd go, ah, oh, I, I, I have to go think about these things. I have to go think about these things. And then he would go off and he'd take a break and he'd come back and he'd say, okay, I think I believe this. This is good. This is good, you know. Uh, and uh, just a precious guy. Um, but, um, and his wife was pregnant. They're getting ready to have their first child. And the last day I was there, uh, for the first time ever, they asked him to translate for the general gathering. Uh, and he started to do that, and then all of a sudden he got really weird, and he complained of a stomachache, and he just left. And I spent a lot of time with this guy, and it's like, man, I don't, I'm flying out the next morning, and I hope I, just, I hope I get to see him again. Well, I, I didn't get to see him again, so I got on Facebook, and, and you know we made a connection, and so I contacted him on Facebook Messenger, and I said, I'm sorry, I'm leaving in the morning, and I won't get to tell you goodbye. I just want you to know how much I came to love you, and I hope you can stay connected. Well, this was about 8, 9 p.m. And I get a call on Facebook Messenger. Did you know you can get phone calls on Facebook Messenger? Yeah, I did not know that. I get this, my, 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 my iPad is ringing, and this, he is calling me. And I'm like, you know, answer it, okay. And, and he said, uh, I'm coming to see you. Uh, and he was, on, he was on the subway coming from the refugee camp. He had gotten in the subway when he saw that. And he and his wife were coming all the way, probably 45 minutes to an hour in. And somehow he remembered we were staying close to Victoria Station. Hmm. So he called me at a stop in another station, and he told me he would be at Victoria Station about 20 minutes. Could I meet him there? Well, by the time he got there, it was going to be like 11 o'clock at night. I'd go to bed at 10. <laughs> we must suffer for the kingdom. <laughs> so I got out, and I hadn't been out that late, and I go into Victoria Park, it's 11, 11.15 at night. Refugees everywhere. All smoking, hookah, and talking, and I'm trying to find him in the midst of all this. And I spot him, and he comes, and he gives me this big hug. And he said, I had to tell you goodbye. I had to tell you goodbye. And he said, I'm so ashamed. I'm so ashamed. He said, I had to explain why I left today. He said, he said I was translating... And then the person that was speaking began to say good things about Jesus. And even though I believed what he was saying, I was afraid to say it because there were four men at the back that I thought were radicals. And he said, I was afraid they would record what I was saying and take pictures of me and send it back to Kabul and my father as a police officer would be killed because I said good things about Jesus. And said, so I lied. And I told him I had a stomachache, and I left, and I'm ashamed. And I said, I wish I could tell you his name. I said, thank you for telling me, but you did good. You should not feel ashamed. You're protecting your family. It's okay. But he said, I hope you come back, and what you're doing is good. Our people need to hear about Jesus. Now, I don't know what it's going to take for him to put his father's life at risk to become a Christian. But he loves Jesus and is drawn to Jesus. And then by the thousands, just by the thousands like that, such a sweet-hearted man. It's still occasionally uh, talk by Facebook message or just a, just a, a precious, precious person. Um, this woman goes by the name Sarah. It's not, her, it's not her name. She's from Damascus. You may have heard of it. 
Um, <laughs> she has, uh, she had a husband and two sons and two daughters, but her husband and two sons were killed in a conflict in Syria. Did you meet Sarah when you were there? Okay. So she shows up and she has two daughters. Her husband and her her uh, sons are dead, and she comes to Christ. And her mother-in-law, who's still a very devout Muslim, kidnaps her two daughters and illegally enters into Europe, escapes somewhere into Germany, and she now has no contact with them because the mother-in-law doesn't want them to become Christians, and she now has no one. And because she's now Christian, she doesn't feel safe in the refugee camp. And so she's sleeping on the streets. And finally, uh, one of the churches there helps her find some temporary housing with people who are trying to provide protection for new Christians who have come to Jesus and, and are now targets of potential violence. But she's had all of this loss and yet she is one of the most enthusiastic, joyful people you'd ever imagine. I, I have some video of her singing praise songs in Arabic. I have no idea what any of it means, but she tells me it's about Jesus. And she's a worship leader. She loves to sing and she loves to lead other people in the praise of Jesus. And she comes out and she volunteers every day and she's just so filled with joy. And you hear her story. How is that awesome? And we'd been there a couple of weeks and my wife just, I'm not going to know. I'm going to know. So she went to her and, and she goes by the name Sarah now. It's a biblical name. She said, Sarah, how is it possible that you have such joy and love to worship so much? She said, Well, she said, Every morning I get up and I put on my makeup and I come down and I serve people in the name of Jesus and I worship because this is my therapy. And if I don't, I just lay home in bed and cry all day. But she said, worship is my therapy and the joy of the Lord is my strength. And I have found life in Jesus and I just want other people to find life in Jesus. Uh, I could go on and on and on. Let me tell you a couple, a couple stories from North Africa. Um... A guy, uh, call him uh, Abdul. Uh, he uh, he has three dreams in one night. In the first dream, he sees Jesus appear to him and say to him, "Abdul, I love you." Isa, why is he saying that? Dream is over. Second dream. Jesus appears and he has holes in his hands and his feet and his side. He does not know the story of the cross. He has holes in his hands and his feet and his side. And he says to him, eat my body and drink my blood. And he thinks this is just horrible. And he's just nauseated. Dream ends. In the third dream, Jesus appears to him again. And this time he says, you will be my witness. And, and he names the country. Well, in their culture, dreams are extremely significant. It's a, it's a portal to the divine. God speaks in dreams. You take these things very seriously. So he goes online. He's in his mid-twenties. He goes online and he starts searching for Jesus stuff. To learn about Jesus. And he finds some missionaries who have set up a website for people who are looking for Jesus. And they broker a meeting and this is, has to be done very, very carefully. It's like spycraft, you know. That, 
how they, they set this up. They set up a meeting. And this uh, missionary who meets him, who's from Venezuela, and by the way, Latinos make the best missionaries to Arabs. Uh, culturally, there's some real, you know, they blend in really well. But this guy's from Venezuela. He uh, meets him and he gives him a New Testament and he hears of his dreams and he says, well, read the Gospel of Matthew and when you're done, give me a call. Because not everybody follows up, you know. So this guy really motivated him. The next morning, he calls. He said, I read Gospel of Matthew last night. At the end it says, I need to be baptized. Will you baptize me today? <laughs> he says, I want to follow Jesus. He is Son of God. Okay? So, Abdul misses his job. He doesn't go to work. They go up and he's baptized in the Mediterranean because they live right there on the coast. And he's filled with joy. He decides he's going to be a disciple of Jesus. So he goes to work the next day. And his boss says, where were you? So he said, I went to the ocean and I was baptized. I'm now a follower of Jesus. And he was summarily fired. <laughs> he tells his cousin, no, no, no. His cousin comes to him and says, I've been having dreams about Esau. And he says, really? Tell me about your dreams. He tells him, he said, well, I've been having dreams about Esau too. And I was baptized. I am now a Christian. And so he then baptizes his cousin. Well, then the family begins to find out about it because they're pretty bold in terms of talking about what's going on with them. And his brothers and his cousins pull them back out, back out of, uh, pull them out in the street at a family gathering and beat them until the grandmother comes out and tells the family to leave them alone and stop beating them and to quit persecuting for being Christians. And then when all the other family's gone, the grandmother tells them that she's secretly been a Christian since... She was a very young woman that before the French left this country that someone had told her about Jesus, a uh, French missionary or pastor or whatever. She'd been a secret believer in Jesus but she'd been afraid to tell. Well, they're in a, they're in a coffee shop. We're like, I'm going to finish this story. We don't have time for one more. Uh, they're in a coffee shop and they're reading a Bible in a coffee shop. Um, and... Uh, some Muslim Brotherhood guys come in and see what they're doing and ask them what they're doing. They say, we're reading the Bible. They pull them out of the street. They beat them. They stab this guy, knock out some teeth. And, of course, the cops are called and they're arrested because it's illegal to do that, you know, to people. And uh, they have to testify in a trial about what happened. And so this guy I'm calling Abdul gets up and in front of the whole court, he testifies. He didn't just say I was attacked. He said... We were reading the Bible because we are Christians. And he tells his testimony he became a Christian. And they attacked us because we are Christians. And it was seven guys from the Islamic Brotherhood. And he tells the whole story about how attacked. Well, then when the judge has heard the case, he sentences these guys to seven years in jail. And then after the case is over, he pulls up to the side and he said, I don't know about your Jesus, but we need more people like you in our country. Now, I wish I had time to tell you more stories, but it's 4.15. Well, actually, according to my watch, it's only 12. And it's Apple, so that has to be right. <laughs> Cupertino touch. Uh, um, I can just tell you story after story after story after story like that. They don't all end pretty. They're not all victory stories. They don't all end faithful. But God is on the move. And we need to be there. We need to be there to welcome refugees. 
We need to be there to serve them in the name of Jesus. We do, you don't win Muslims with apologetics. You don't win them with argument. We have 1,400 years to prove that. We win them by demonstrating love and service and humility um, and inviting them into a better story. And as so many of these refugees said and testified publicly in front of many other Muslims and Arabs, they said, our fellow Arabs did not help us. Our fellow Muslims did not help us. It was our enemies, the Christians, who are helping us. We are tired of war. We are tired of Muhammad, Islam. We need Jesus. This is a moment. So go back and tell your churches to quit being so afraid. God's on the move. And let's do something about this. Let's join this story. It's an incredible story. We want to do something about an MRN, but we're not the only ones addressing this problem. Craig Young's doing about some really cool stuff with it in Marseille. There are people all around the Mediterranean who are trying to respond to this. They all need help. They all need resources. Uh, don't sit on the sidelines when the most important play of the game is taking place. Mm -hmm. This is bigger than the fall of the Iron Curtain. That was a 70-year period of time. This is 1,400-year period of time. We're talking about over a billion people. And the people who are going to take the gospel back into these countries are the people who are going to find Jesus around the Mediterranean now. So let's end in prayer. Father, thank you. Thank you, thank you for what you're doing in the world. And in the darkest moments, in the most hopeless places, in the most violent and evil situations, you are never without a witness and you are never without power to act. Thank you, Lord, for what you're doing and help us to see how we fit into this story. And Lord, we pray that the wars would end. We pray that the revolutions would end. We pray that the violence would end. But as long as it goes, Lord, we pray that your people would rush in, not run away. And we pray that we would hear more of these stories, more transformation. We pray that this would be the leverage moment that the gospel floods east and south from the Mediterranean. We pray, Lord, that it would reawaken faith in Europe from the most unlikely sources. We pray, Lord, that you would complete what you have started with the full support of your people. And we pray that our churches would stop being afraid and they would be excited about joining what's happening here. Lord, may we welcome the foreigner, uh, the homeless. Uh, may we not see them as our enemies, but our fellow human beings who are loved dearly by you, your children who need to come home. And may we welcome them home, Lord. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you all for coming. Thank you.